Hello, and welcome to SparkSesh, a podcast about the people behind the products, services, and brands we love, brought to you by MindSpark Research International. I'm Nikki Lavoie, founder of MindSpark and curator of content for the curious, and I'm so happy you've decided to listen in. SparkSesh is dedicated to shining a light on the people who create, who design, and very importantly, who test the things we interact with in our lives before they ever see the light of day. This podcast will be bringing you interviews with experts, debates about the details, and real talk about how the research gets done that shapes almost everything in our world. Whether you are a researcher, a marketer, a product or brand owner, or someone who does something else entirely, tune into this and other episodes of SparkSesh as we go down the rabbit hole and explore the various characters playing a role in consumer research. For our first episode, we're honored to have the brilliant Steve August with us. If you're an average consumer, you may not have heard of Steve, so if you're wondering if you should listen to this episode, you definitely should. Steve fundamentally changed the research world for those of us whose work tests and explores what people think and how they feel about brands or products, which means his work has certainly had, and still has, a massive impact on the things you have purchased. He is the creator of the Revelation online qualitative research platform, which is now owned by Focus Vision, another research company. He also runs a company called August and Wonder. In addition to all of this, he is a friend, a mentor, my business coach, and an all-around great guy. Have a listen as we talk about the past, present, and future of how we research what people buy. Oh, recording has started. You heard that? You're all clear and happy with... Okay, perfect. So, hi everybody. I am Nikki. We are here with the Spark Sesh podcast. First ever real episode with my pal and expert Steve August. And actually, Steve, I feel like you have probably many titles because you have at least two ongoing businesses that I know of and maybe some ideas brewing somewhere. Um, do you want to tell me what are what are the names of your two businesses and, and what, what, what are your official titles? Sure, Nikki. Well, first, I just got to say I'm honored to be the very first interview. The very first. Everyone else has right. very, that, very big shoes to fill after this. Well, I'll let them be the judge of that, but <laughs> I'm just happy to be here and uh, have been just so amazed and impressed uh, at your progress over the years that I've known you. So I'm very Thank honored you. both as a, uh, a friend and as a fan. To and a coach. Here. And a coach. And so, yeah, so for my, uh, what I do, uh, I have two main businesses. The first is Steve August Coaching, and I specifically coach founders and uh, who are growing from from sort of a seed stage to the growth stage and uh, helping them with the key transformations that every founder and every company need to make to make their business grow reliably and uh with maintaining sanity as well. <laughs> and uh, it's something that I went through as uh, the founder and uh, CEO of Revelation. Uh, so I went through the journey of going from idea to exit in the market research industry. I know the journey very well. I know the ups and downs. And uh, so I'm really happy to have had a good outcome and now being able to help other people making the same journey. Cool. And your and, second business? And- my second business is uh, a passion business called August and Wonder, and it makes creative art meets Internet of Things objects. The first one was released uh, a couple years ago. It was called The Market, 
and it is a sculpture of a bull and a bear on a seesaw made out of brass and wood and it's about tabletop size sits on people's desks and it tilts literally uh in real time as the stock markets make changes as it goes up or down so you said your first product does that mean that there is a second product in the works or well the series second series of that product is deal uh the series b so the market series a was released uh back in 2018 and the series b will be released later this year very exciting so um i obviously know you from the market research universe um before august and wonder was a thing i think and so i was wondering if maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about that story so how did you become a coach of founders as you referenced you were a founder um so maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today so it sounds like you want me to start after the revelation side of things where i grew my company not necessarily i think that is part yeah. of the story okay i think yeah so, i think that's part of it so let's 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 rewind way back uh to 2005 2006 and that's when i started revelation it was actually the outgrowth uh of working with my wife who was the original market researcher in our family and quite She's a good an one. og yes and this she was a design researcher and did a lot of ethnographies and in homes and Revelation started out as a way to, to essentially make the paper diary thing that she sent out a lot easier. So it, we used web diaries, blogs, instead of paper diaries. And we thought, okay, this could work. And not only did it work, it was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe what people are sharing with us. <laughs> you know, it was like, it wasn't just like one part of the study, it could be the whole study. And as we started speaking about that at conferences, people started coming up to us and saying, hey, that looks really cool, can we use that? Because there wasn't anything like that at the time. That's why we, we made it. Everything else was trying to emulate focus groups. And we were like, yeah, but we can go right to their lives and see what's going on. Why don't we do that? Uh, and so people asked us if we could use what we had made, but we said you could, but you really wouldn't want to because it was really hard to use. You had to be very technical. And knowing what I do about researchers, there would be, there would be issues. And so, <laughs> but I said, we could probably build something that is really more purpose-built for this for getting into people's lives. And that's what Revelation became. So we went through the process of using our own money, using family and friends money, raising a million and a half dollars from angel investors, and then scaling from there. And that was quite a journey. I had never led a startup before or led a business, but I was kind of like, well, I'll figure it out. And it was almost an accidental entrepreneur adventure. Like there, I didn't set out to be like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go create a startup and do this thing. It's sort of like, oh, I just want to do this one thing, help my wife do this one job, and all of a sudden it snowballed into something entirely different. And so that journey of learning, like there's so much you don't know uh, as somebody starting a business for the first time and growing the business, and each stage it challenges you to transform in different ways. And it also has this way of pushing all your buttons and triggering all your triggers and anything, any psychic baggage that you're that you got uh, at the start of the journey. It just it's just in play the whole time uh, <laughs> unless you start to, to to look at it. And so I went through that that journey and fortunately got a good exit when Focus Vision acquired us in 2014, and then worked for Focus Vision for. Uh, a year as their chief innovation officer and in that time they had bought a few other companies like decipher and then they sold that to another big private equity company and uh, uh there was a transition i ended up being the the, the cmo of focus vision and reporting to directly to a, a private equity board and uh which i like to joke isn't as fun as it sounds 
<laughs> Which is great, because it doesn't sound that fun. <laughs> precisely. Uh, and so by, by, by 2017, I, I, I was ready for new adventures. It was honestly pretty burnout. I think I had like 850,000 miles on Delta built up oh that it, because I had never been able to use them and was ready to be done and was in the position where I could, I could, I could be done. And so I left and was tossing around and uh, I noticed that people started coming to me and saying, hey, can you, I got something going on with my business. I'd be really interested to hear your take on it. And I realized I really like helping people with these questions. And it turned out I had learned a lot over this time. Like <laughs> I had absorbed a lot and I could help people kind of understand where they were in the journey and cut through what the issues were uh, and then help them sort of guide them on where they needed to go. And you were the first person, actually. You were, you know, this is so fitting that I'm your first guest because you were my first coaching client. I was the guinea pig. Yes. And, and I'm so one, glad. It, it must mean that I was a very successful guinea pig because you went forth and, and coached many more guinea piglets after me. Yeah. Well, I look at it as I must have been good because uh, seeing what the progression of, of MindSpark and what you've created and, uh, you know, from where you started uh, when we first started working together it, and how you've stepped into it so fully and it's just been amazing i'm just a huge fan and i know a lot of other people who are huge fans as well so oh. it's um it's so gratifying uh to see that and that's that's the whole point right is to help people through that journey and yeah. you, i i believe that the, the right coach shows up at the right time mm -hmm. and the right client shows up at the right time as well mm -hmm. so that's that's how i got to where i am and then i've just been building on that and getting dialing things in more and more as I've coached over the years, I've realized, oh, there are kind of five areas that everything I coach around falls into. And, you know, one is getting to the point of ruthless simplicity with your business. Like the best businesses, figure out a way to make things simple because complexity is the biggest killer of growth and progress and energy and mm -hmm. focus. So that process of being able to get to, to that ruthless clarity and simplicity is really key. And then it's customer creation, like creating a flywheel for that, because that's the engine of growth. If you can't consistently grow your customer base uh, and ma maintain your customer base, then it's really hard to make things happen. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and that's where the stress comes. Like the world comes. is experiencing right now at this very moment. Yes, the world has hit a wall uh, <laughs> in this sense, like these major events. I, there's three three patterns that I see in that area of, of people creating customers and, and growing revenue. There's three patterns when, when things start to get tough. One is just a simple plateau where you just get to this level and you can't seem to bust through to the next level. Mm -hmm. It might be a, you know, a certain revenue amount. We had that with Revelation. We got to like a million dollars and God, it was so hard to get up to two. Mm -hmm. And it was just like this plateau. And the reason was we had to do things differently. The other, another pattern, the second pattern is this roller coaster where it's like, oh, our sales are great. Our sales are, are now low. Our sales are great. And it's usually, especially in a service-based industry, it's usually a sell-do problem. It's like you sell, 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 and then you, you, you succeed in selling. And then you have to spend all your time doing, which means you're not selling, right. <laughs> which creates the dip. Yep. And so, and the pattern just repeats. Uh, and then the third is the wall. It's like something big happens. A major client just stops using you. Uh, a pandemic unfolds, <laughs> you know, a financial crisis. Uh, that's the one I navigated back in 2008. That was like 
we launched our our, uh, our redo of, of Revelation after our funding on the, in the first week of October 2008, and the world fell over promptly, and we had to like figure out how to survive Thanks. that. Yeah. Mm. So these things happen, but they're always some. I always find there's blessings in them because they they have this way of pointing out the weak weaknesses in your business, even though you mm -hmm. don't want to have that pointed out to you. It's actually really amazing service that these right. events do if you take it that way. And if you can can adapt and pivot and uh, adjust, then you come back through the other side really strong. Right. Well, that's actually a big part of the reason why I wanted the first ever SparkSesh podcast episode to be with you is because mm -hmm. um, in total transparency, I heard you as a guest on someone else's podcast recently, and you were talking about some of the things that you kind of lived through and some of the things that you experienced. And I remembered, oh, yes, Revelation survived a recession. And here we are. Um, I don't know if we're officially in a recession or it's going to be considered one very shortly, but I kind of wanted to talk to you about that as now you're kind of witnessing the recession, whereas, you know, be previously you lived through it. And I was wondering if, you know, you're still connected with research in general via the founders mm -hmm. that you coach. And I was wondering kind of what did you, what have you noticed this time around in terms of comparisons versus the last time around? similarities differences what do you what do you see yeah so what i'm seeing in terms of similarities is that it is a some huge event that's beyond everybody's control and is impacting the whole world mm -hmm. i think this one's actually worse uh in some ways because it's so open-ended and ill-defined yeah. right like 9 11 was like okay that was really horrible and bad it, but it's a discreet thing Right, like the planes were flying two weeks after, yeah, or or three weeks, whatever, however long it took the planes to get back in the air, and we could travel again uh, right. with more security. This is like we don't know when this is going to really end, um, and the impact and the level of uncertainty is so much greater here than there was in two thousand eight. Two thousand eight, mm -hmm. the gears of the machinery of the financial world had just you know totally broken down. This is like no, we're all subject to this really tough thing that's going on. Mm -hmm. And so that's the big difference. So and what I've seen is like April and May were like peak uncertainty, like business dropped for a lot of people, like 90 mm percent -hmm. level drops because everybody was like, you know, we're locked down. We're going to be locked down for at least the next 60 days. And so all the decisions have been locked down, too. And what I've been hearing since then is that people that the people are seeing rebounds mm -hmm. It's like people are like, oh, OK, this is our kind of our new next normal. And yes, it's uncertain, but I think we can start adapting and start yeah. moving forward on that. And mm -hmm. so I think we're, we're, my clients are starting to see you know, that come, come around uh, in the market research field. Other mm -hmm. clients are just going gangbusters in different fields as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, so it's, a, it's amazing. It's, it's, not like a, it's not like uniform across all my clients, but market research definitely has been challenged. And of course, people who were doing in-person market research were the most challenged, and that's the, you know, a lot of the qualitative world. Mm -hmm. um, and so that has been the biggest kind of patterns that I've seen, and it's still unfolding. Mm -hmm. But people, what I'm seeing are people are starting to adapt their offerings, they're starting to, and, and clients are starting to adapt their thinking Mm -hmm. about, okay, where are we going to place our bets? How are we going to get our insights? And starting to pick up again and sort of just say, 
okay, we're not going to shut down forever. We can't sit on our hands forever. Business has got to go on. Time's going to move on. We got to we got to now operate in this world. Right. I wonder if you have ever um, hypothesized in your own mind, if you were still working with, you know, let's say that there wasn't an an exit and you were still Mm -hmm. a part of the revelation team. I wonder if your experience of this economic crisis would perhaps have been the reverse of your experience the last time around, because I I imagine that revelation is, is one of those companies that's, got a lot of work going on right now, given the shift to trying to connect with people digitally. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's, it, I had this thought when this all unfolded was like, and it's not a great thought, but it's a thought that said, man, I wish the 2008 crisis was a pandemic because <laughs> our biggest, com- our biggest competition was always in-person research. Yeah. And, it, and the pandemic for 60 days going on 90 days has kind of eliminated that competition mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, um, we would have been very well positioned to take that message out into the world and and have people really be able to experience what's possible in a way that they probably were not as open to because they didn't they had a choice and mm-hmm. at this point they don't really have a choice they can't really do in person yeah well without asking for you know private details of any of your coaching clients um, do you feel like you have witnessed or heard um, some of those examples that you were saying about, you know, some people are going gangbusters and some people are really challenged? Are the founders that you're dealing with having those sort of blessings in disguise moments that you talked about where they're like, okay, well, now I have to learn about my business and I've got to pivot and I've got to figure things out? Or is it, you know, a different kind of experience for them? Well, I don't want to minimize people's, you know, pain at losing clients or, or projects and things like that. But there are some really important things that, that are being learned right now. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's, that, that is a truism in the research industry is that much of the marketing calendar is centered around conferences. Mm-hmm. So people orient their, their kind of pushes and their, their business development efforts around conferences. And there's plenty to choose from, more and more every year, it seems. And that was just taken away from people. So all mm-hmm. that travel, all that prep, all, that, all those resources, suddenly they have to say, okay, Without the conference as we know them, you know, now there's some virtual ones, but without the actual kind of go to a place, hobnob, you know, present, what have you, how do we get our customers now? Yeah. Like, what's our day to day? And I think that's going to prove to be a huge blessing because that makes you think, okay, what are we doing to get our next customer today? Not mm-hmm. like when the next conference, what are we going to do for the next conference? It's like, what are we doing now? How yeah. are we every day? doing some reach out? How are we every day creating a relationship with potential customers? How are we doing cold outreach? Mm-hmm. Like, and in order to do all that, you have to, it forces you to retrench and think about, okay, what are we really in the game to offer? What are we can offer right now that is like a huge win mm-hmm. uh, for people that, that is not about our methodology per se. Of course, that's how we deliver it, but what it is they actually need. And how do we get that message across without having to like go to a conference, get on planes and spend all that time and energy at these events? And I think people are seeing that, oh my gosh, there isn't a a lot of time and energy can now be applied to things that are day, everyday business development activities that can actually move the needle. Yeah. I actually find it an interesting parallel as well between, you know, in at least within the market research sort of bubble, 
or I will say the research bubble because it's not just market research, right? It's user research, it's service design research and all this kind of stuff. We're all facing the same thing. Um, I would say that we're all facing, you know, the parallel is that we're facing the challenge now of how can we still conduct meaningful, purposeful, impactful research under these sort of digital circumstances, I'll call them. And mm -hmm. at the same time, we're also saying, how can we get our clients <laughs> in digital circumstances as well? So we're kind of being forced to, to look at things um, in, in two different, from two different perspectives in terms of digital engagement. Because as you say, you know, we used to be able to just, I, I used to do that. I used to say, hey, I'm in, I'm in your neighborhood. Let's, you know, grab a coffee and have a meeting and talk about what MindSpark can do for you. And now I can't do that. So now the same methods that I'm applying to figuring out how I can make sure I continue to reach users and consumers in a meaningful way. I'm I'm having to think about that in a similar yet different way for for clients. So I was wondering as well, kind of, you know, what you think about um, technology and what the role technology is playing in all of this, because from my perspective, I think technology is taking a bit of a beating. So people are saying, oh, I'm tired of Zoom calls. I'm tired of podcasts. I'm tired of this. I'm tired of that. Um, but at the same time, there's a role for it. So I was wondering kind of what you thought about it, especially having seen this, you know, in a previous cycle. Well, on the building a business side, what I see the technology is, is just uh, the automation and marketing tools that are available right now can take a if you really understand how to apply them, can take a small business development team and, and just totally magnify their impact and the, their ability to like create this ongoing flywheel of customer creation. Like for my, even for myself, it's like as I'm sitting here right now, I, I think my systems are sending out, you know, 20, 30 cold emails to, to people who are in my target audience, and you know, it's all about building the relationship, and mm -hmm. uh, you have to start somewhere. So. On the on the business development side, if you you think about it that way, it's just it's just like being a bionic person, you know, <laughs> and in the ability to like amplify your your human efforts. But the important thing is that it's all human, and it's all personalized, and it's all about relationships. So everything's just tools. So on the research side, to me, it's like again, it, it's all about how you establish. Like if you're doing a a research study, you have to establish a relationship with the people you're doing the research with. Absolutely. And and these are just mediums. Yes, Zoom is taxing, uh, cognitively taxing in a way that being in person isn't. And so you work with those those constraints, um, and then you also find where they where they help, right? Where they can actually be uh, of assistance. And mm -hmm. um, as you know, when I was selling Revelation, people would say, you know, it's not ethnography. You're, you, you're not there. It's not the same thing. I'm like, yeah, you're right. You're, you're, you're making trade-offs, right? Each, each medium has its strengths and its challenges. Like, you know, when you're in person, it's sort of the gold standard. You can see body language. You can see the environment. You can see all these things. You can't sustain it, right? Mm -hmm. You can only be there for a certain amount of time. This is like, you know, when we were doing online ethnography, it was more... We can sustain this. We don't have the same, you know, level of being in the, immersed in their environment. But if we're if we understand the medium and work to its strengths and give them specific kinds of activities that play to those strengths, rather than just firing questions at people, mm -hmm. which was like the bigger innovation with Revelation, then you can get what you need. And at the end of the day, that's the whole point, right? Mm -hmm. What is the what is the insight needed to drive a decision? 
Yeah. Like everything else after that is secondary. Mm-hmm. Like how you get there is just a factor of the tools that you have, the channels that you have available to you and, and which one will work best in that situation. Yeah. I'm going to throw you a curveball question and feel free to say that you do not feel comfortable answering it. I will not take offense, but I was wondering if you wanted to weigh in on the ever-present debate about user research and market research. So I don't know if you've been hearing any of the buzz kind of going around, but I'm sure you can picture a a Venn diagram with two circles Mm -hmm. and there is lots of differing opinions as to how much overlap there are between these two worlds. So I would love to just kind of hear as someone who made a tool that was being used for definitely market research, but I'm sure also user research as well. If you have any kind of thoughts or opinions on on how big that overlap is between those two worlds. You know, I think the issue with market research as a term is forever, or since a lot of its inceptions, it's basically boiled down to surveys and focus groups. Not that there isn't tons of other methodologies, but if you look at SMR's report every year, you look at the two biggest methodologies, surveys and focus groups. Mm -hmm. So and that sense of like user research didn't really, you know, it comes from a different mindset. So in terms of an overlap, there is, but in the same way that is there overlap between market research and analytics, they're all working in the same realm of like, we need to understand people to answer business questions. Mm-hmm. Right, we're all, that's that's the, the short definition of all of these things. Yeah, um, I'm actually purpose. wondering how much, of the, how much of the terminology makes sense to hold on to, because when I hear market research, I literally think about like market sizing studies mm-hmm. and you know, what percentage of people are likely to do X behavior. Whereas I don't think I, as someone who's been doing qualitative research for well over, well, I'm approaching 15 years now, as someone who's been doing qualitative research for that amount of time within the market, like under the market research umbrella, I haven't felt like I've done a whole lot that's been related to markets necessarily. I've done a lot of, you know, sort of association related things, exploratory research about emotions, about journeys, about all of this kind of stuff. And and the idea of what market research is to me seems very far from what I do. So I don't know if it's, is it a terminology thing that we're, we're grasping on or what, what's, what's causing this sort of battle between these, these universes, do you think? I mean, I think it is sort of old school, new school, um, <laughs> like, cause everything used to be market research. Like there wasn't user research. It wasn't really product research. There wasn't all this stuff, you know, go back 40 years, 30, even 35 years. I mean, mm-hmm. 30 years ago, Gosh, 30 years ago it was 1990. So ethnography was a still a pretty foreign concept to to the research world. Mm-hmm. What do you mean you're going to go and visit? Them? At least outside of academia, for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's there's just a few people doing it, and then these design firms it, it started to come in on the design firms like Fitch uh, and IDEO started to employ them, and all of a sudden it started and some other ones um, at the time, and and you started to have schools teaching it. So I guess it's an evolution. In my in my view, it's an evolution. Like mm-hmm. the market, market research is kind of the big umbrella is like understanding the market inside of your market are people and things um, <laughs> that need to reach them. So to me, it's like, it's an argument or a discussion that people can go around and around on. But at the end of the day, it's just the name to call it. Like go deliver, <laughs> what, <laughs> w- 
go deliver what the customer needs, and you can figure out what to call it afterwards. Yeah. You know what? It, you could call I, it nachos guess, if you want. <laughs> you can call it you know market nachos, and <laughs> it would be fine. Or user nachos, and it's just the same deal, right? To me, I, I tend to like stay away from some of these kind of nomenclature discussions because there's no there's no real end to it. Mm-hmm. And even if there is an end, what does that actually get us? Like to me, it's, it's all about the pragmatic pragmatic act of helping somebody understand what they need to understand so that they can take the next step in their business. If you can mm-hmm. give them that moment of clarity, moment of insight, I don't care what you call it, just make it happen and, you know, good things will happen after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you in terms of terminology and overlap. I, I have found um, in my experience over the last couple of years that I see a sort of division starting where people people say, I am a user researcher, not a market researcher. And other people say, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a market researcher, not a user researcher. And I'm just, I just sort of feel like I'm just sitting here watching it unfold and saying, why are we even having this debate? Well, but, yeah. here's where it's useful. To me, the only thing that, that makes a difference to me is like, one of the things that, in terms of business development is to make it as easy as possible for somebody to figure out whether they need you or they don't, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's like, it, it doesn't matter, it almost doesn't matter if they need you or if they don't need you as long as they can figure that out really quickly. Right. Because uh, if, if, if everybody's working to figure that out, then everybody's losing time. So ultimately it comes down to what do people want to call you? Mm-hmm. Right, well, what do the people you want to work with want to call you, right? If they want to call you a user researcher, go be a user researcher. It, it just saves them time figuring mm-hmm. out. If you say you're a market researcher, then they have to like say, well, are you the kind of market researcher that might be a, you know, the kind of user researcher that I like yeah. or, you know, that I want to work with. But to me, it's like, how do you, how do you unconfuse everything? How do you make it ruthlessly simple for somebody to figure out if they need you? Yep. That is a good point. Um, and to shift gears slightly, I am going to ask you a little bit about some of the people that you're coaching. So mm-hmm. you were a founder. I'm sure that back in the day when you started Revelation, you probably knew other founders um, of different other types of products. Have you noticed anything about the founders that you coach today that you either didn't see back then um, in founders you know, from your generation, we'll say, or from your school of founders? Or are you seeing basically a founder is a founder is a founder and there's a lot of, you know, really similar mindsets? Yeah, founders are similar mindsets. There's different flavors of them. Like some Mm -hmm. are more visionary, some are more like operators, some are more sales, some are more uh, come from a passion orientation, some come from a a problem orientation, some just come from a purely financial orientation. Which kind of founder were you? Oh, passion founder. Mm Mm-hmm. And Which, what is a passion uh, founder? A passion founder tends to like find something, an idea or something they really love to work on. And they're not, they don't go through the sense of like, oh, but the market for this will be billions and I want to, you know, attack that market. They'll be like, I just want to make this thing in the world and, and, and grow a business around that thing. Mm-hmm. Like that's a passion entrepreneur. Like, yeah. That's the first and foremost. So August and Wonder, my company, is a passion entrepreneur's project. Yeah, right? it's not something that I could pitch to VCs or anything. Um, it's just not that kind of company at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's it's anytime you're kind of creating your own category, sometimes that's that's a passion niche indicator as well. Mm-hmm. Whereas a you know you know somebody who's a 
kind of impact the entrepreneur wants to make the biggest possible impact on the world. Mm-hmm. So your your Steve Jobs and your Elon Musk's and you know people who just want to change the way the world works in a big way, mm-hmm. like they just want they want to make the biggest impact and they figure out where the intersection of that is uh, with the markets. And so and usually it's the one goes with the other. Like if you're making that big of an impact on the world, there's usually a huge amount of financial you know wave that comes with it mm-hmm. because you're touching you're just touching that many people. Mm-hmm. So that's so I, I see the, both those kinds of founders. I have one founder. He has an amazing product. It's called Mudwater, and the guy's name is Shane Heath. And Mudwater is, this the is that's made from mushrooms. Mushroom? Yes, it's a coffee coffee, coffee. substitute. Yeah, it, but it's made from mushrooms, uh, different blends of mushrooms and cacao, and it's really addictive. Uh, it's really good. And his his goal is to dethrone coffee. And that is a big undertaking yeah so but it is amazing how much they're doing in business right now and they're they've just doubled quarter over quarter wow and they're not starting at a small number right so that's they've just hit this this inflection point and they've got the marketing uh dialed and they're continuing to grow and he's an impact guy i mean it's a passion for him but it's also an impact thing um Mm. and so what i see you know, from my the founders that I'm coaching, uh, especially the younger ones, is, is a level of energy and a dedication both to the vision outside of things, like what are we going, what are we being, and also how to operate, like how to actually make a company. Like that's the, one of the key founder transformations is going from founder to like CEO. Mm-hmm. Like you get the t- you get both titles when you start essentially, yeah, president or CEO. Like, but the, you you're really only the founder. Right, because the founder is just the person who started it. Right. Right. A CEO actually has to like operate things, and and um, that's something you learn and transform into. And mm-hmm. each stage of your company requires you to transform in a different way. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the founders that I'm working with, I'm just loving, and I saw this with you actually as well. Is like seeing that transformation from like okay, I'm the person who does the thing and makes the thing and the expert and the thing or whatever to like I'm the person who creates the organization that does the thing and makes the thing and and executes everything and that's mm-hmm. it's just amazing to see because that's how you magnify your impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, one of the one of the techniques that people who conduct qualitative interviews often do is we'll. we'll We'll do an interview with somebody and we'll ask all these questions and we'll kind of beat around the bush and then at the end we'll say what I really wanted to know is this um, and so a lot of the questions that I've been asking you is really because I've been cheekily trying to find out if you think that there has actually been some evolution and change specifically under the research umbrella or if you think we're doing a lot of the same old things that you know mm-hmm. we were doing 15 20 years ago um, and what does that mean either way yeah, I, I think it's a combination. I think a lot of the founders, if you look at the founders, like I think of, of folks like John Williamson who founded Qualview and me at mm-hmm. Revelation and like, and then I look at the, you know, like, you know, um, Dave Carruthers and over at Vox Pop Me and some of the other technology founders, they feel, it feels very similar. Like people mm-hmm. who see the research industry and go like, hey, I know technology, we can make this go in a, a really interesting way. And, mm-hmm. Um, and I also see still a lot of old school, you know, field and tab type of founders as well, mm-hmm. who are, and and folks who are 
on the on the research side. But I think there, you know, the platform side is is you know has picked up such momentum, um, and the you know when you see what's happened to like kind of the the bigger research companies and they've had to do some consolidation and, and some of the mid-size, like it's, it's just been a more challenging environment. But it's, it, I still see that energy of, of, of certain founders who are in the service space and are doing really dynamic things or are kind of rethinking stuff and saying, okay, here's a new world. It's really interesting to hear that phone centers are, some of the phone centers are actually doing pretty well right now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. One, one, Right, because it's a different world. It's election year, of course, so they always mm -hmm. get a boost that in, in, in this year, uh, in these these election years. But it, it's just there's. I gave a presentation, the last event that I actually attended and presented at in February. It was February. Uh, was the M or the Insights Association? I'm about to say MRA, but Insights Association, <laughs> uh, Las Vegas Double Down Conference, and I gave this talk about how to think and grow like a micro brand, like a direct to consumer micro brand. And I gave mm -hmm. this, told the story of Native. It's a deodorant brand mm -hmm. um, that has that started in like 2017 and sold to Procter and Gamble in uh, no 2015, sold to Procter and Gamble in like 2017, 2018 for 100 million dollars, zero wow. to 100 million in you know a few years. Insane, right? Mm -hmm. And and the first slide was like, think about this. Who in the world thought anybody needed another deodorant? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are so many right now, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, so one of the things, the lesson was like, even stale categories or perceived stale categories have a tremendous opportunity for innovation. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things I'm seeing in some of these founders who are in the service side is like, yeah, we'll, we'll think about it differently. We'll, we'll create a new dynamic around it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been really exciting to see. Yeah. Well, that leads to possibly my last question is, you know, you said um, earlier on in the discussion that we don't really know when this pandemic situation is going to end. We don't, we're not really sure if we're going to be back to some quote unquote normal version of life soon, or are we going to be, um, having to practice physical distance, and I emphasize physical distance because it really frustrates me when people say socially distant because actually <laughs> we need to be socially connected right now more than ever. It's the physical distance that we need. So, um, yeah, just wondering, you know, without being able to know for sure what distance needs there will be in our lives, what do you, what predictions do you have? I hate using that word. What do you think? Um, about anything research-related in the world that may need prolonged physical distance? Hmm. Well, I think uh, platforms are going to continue to grow. Mm -hmm. You know, I think people are going to get used to the, uh, you know, they're not, they're going to have to, like, prioritize when in-person is absolutely necessary mm -hmm. and when it's, you know, fine uh, to do other ways. And they're going to mm -hmm. probably see that it's not as necessary as they, they thought originally. Mm -hmm. Not to say they won't go back to it because I think everybody will be really eager when this thing starts to ease up on everybody to like go back and be with people again. Right. Um, so I think there will be a rebound effect on that. In terms uh, I mean, I don't see a, a, um, a huge, you know, market research just turns so slowly or the insights industry seems to turn slowly. I, I think the trajectory will continue. I think they'll be weeding out. Of, of folks, I'll be really interested to see what happens to the facilities. Yeah, you know, whose whole basis is bringing people together into groups. Um, so that's going to be challenging for them. 
I'm sure. But um, I think it's all as this, you know, what they say about crises like this is they accelerate trends. They don't actually create new ones. They just basically take what was there and apply immense pressure to everything. And whatever was kind of struggling or challenged will experience that in a magnified way. And whatever was succeeding will likely potentially do the same. Yeah. I agree with that. We, we, we just had two um, SMR conversations happening virtually, one um, aimed at kind of APAC in Europe and one aimed at North America about innovation and research. And one of the major outcomes of both of those conversations was that there isn't a whole lot of innovation and research happening right this second. The innovation started well before this pandemic, and it's mm -hmm. just being recognized or utilized now in ways that it wasn't before. Yeah people being forced to do this stuff. I mean, I used to joke that I could have given to some people the same pitch, customer pitch I gave in 2006 about, you know, online qualitative research, in-depth ethnographic style. I could probably have given that in 2014 yeah. without oh, yeah. having to edit it very much and maybe even today. Yep. So it moves slowly, but in this, these events are accelerators. So yep. I think you will see it may be a it may be a, a different market research industry or insights industry after this eases off, but it won't it'll just still be very recognizable because we'll have seen it trend coming and we'll have just seen it accelerated. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having this really great conversation with me. I did just want to um, tell anybody out there who is listening to this who is a founder and who may want some coaching services, maybe you could tell everybody where to go to check you out and see if they can connect with you as a possible coach. Yeah, absolutely. SteveAugustCoaching.com is the place to go. Um, that's my website. It's uh, You can schedule a call right there. An intro call and uh, you can check out the insights blog that I have where I do I put all my thinking and you can ask me for a testimonial <laughs> because I've yeah. got only good things to say <laughs> excellent perfect okay great well thanks Steve and um, thanks everybody for listening thanks for having me